As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com That's the alternative spin-off podcast, isn't it, that everybody wants? Drinking with Helen Brazil. <laughs> Do you think that his nickname at school was nuts? Oh, well, I was just about... It must have been. Yeah. Um, obviously, he's Scottish, so... That's uh, my only question for no, him, Jane. Well, later in the week, we've got uh, Robert Peston on our on off air, in fact, and indeed on the live radio show. And I was, for some reason, in the middle of the night, the thought came to me that his surname is is very nearly a popular food so if it'd be how different would his life have been if he'd been robert pesto <laughs> i don't know I well mean... that's going to be my opening conversational gambit to him let's see how we go <laughs> okay i'm going to hold you to that well, because for a long long time pesto wasn't a thing in britain so it wouldn't have been a problem but uh, any child growing up now with the surname Nearly pesto, <laughs> probably, or maybe it's just me. Just because I'm so posh and I have a lot of pesto, I suppose. I make my own. Oh yes, I do. It's ever you such find a big bunch of basil required. <laughs> that homemade pesto is always a bit disappointing. Oh, it's not very nice, but I mean, it doesn't stop <laughs> yeah. me making it. I mean, that goes for almost all my cooking. <laughs> uh, and I know that you've laughed at me about this before, but pesto is my trigger food. Because there was, you know, there's just a good kind of five years of early child rearing. Oh, yeah. Where, where you just really, really, really rely on the Sackler paste. Yeah. <laughs> and just, yeah, I think I got to the stage where I was covering carrots in it, just everything, just covered in pesto. And I really properly just can't bear, I cannot bear the taste of it now. Okay. No. Well, I won't bring you in a jar of my homemade pesto. No, please don't. Please. I don't think nobody... Nobody on this earth has ever asked for one of my jars of homemade pesto, nor yeah. should they. Right, now, our guest today is the Irish writer Anne Enright. Now, in the interest of transparency, you recorded this interview when I was on holiday. That's correct, isn't it? That is correct. Yes. Yes. So I would just like to know a little bit more about her because I know she's highly acclaimed and her latest book is The Wren, The Wren. And first, my first idiotic question to you was, why is it called The Wren Twice? So what is the answer to that? Because The Wren, The Wren is a poem within the novel right. uh, that is written by Phil, who is one of the three main protagonists in the novel. Yeah. And he is one of Ireland's greatest poets. Greatest poets, darling. In his own mind? In, in, well, in no, he does quite, he does quite well. And uh, his part in the book is, I think, quite a clever and perceptive examination of that kind of space that poets seem to need, especially 
male poets where they just need a huge stage and they need everything to be sucked in around them into their ether and their creativity for them to then decide what it is, you know, the motes of dust that fall down that they can capture and nobody else can. Yeah. Mm. But in order for him to be this thing, he's left his family. So the book is very much about how you try and parent when you haven't been parented very well yourself. So the central character is female. So there are two other characters in the book, Carmel, who is Phil, the poet's daughter, and Nell, who is Carmel's daughter. And she is a young writer just trying to make her way in the world, Mm. uh, doing travel pieces. And again, they're very perceptively observed travel pieces, you know, about the joy of lying in a hammock on a deserted beach, which Nell knows. Uh, Actually, you know, people are going to read that article, they're never going to go and do Mm, it. mm. So there's a nice kind of um, ironic twist all the way through the book. But Anne Enright, I think, writes really amazingly about parenting. That, for me, would be what marks her out as a writer I really enjoy. She is one of those writers, Jane, that I've, I read one of her books, I have to go and read some quite mildly entertaining crime fiction afterwards because they're quite dense mm. novels. Yeah, they're books that... There are some writers that I hugely admire whether or not I love them, yeah, it wouldn't. It's not quite the same. No, it? it's not quite the same. No. And and it's definitely, uh, you know, it's it's the equivalent of very carefully crafted, well made, laborious pesto. Sometimes instead of the I've got it in a jar, I'm going to coat my carrots in it. Yeah, type of a book. So. There's a hint of the erotic there when you talk about <laughs> coating your carrots. Um, and actually, talking of uh, writers who just bring me joy, I'm, I just mentioned to you earlier, I'm listening as my audiobook to the new Anne Cleves. And uh, she doesn't need publicity from us because it's already, I think, number one in the chats. But it's The Raging Storm. And she is just so... I, I just... I'm so engrossed. I want to know who has been responsible for the murder of a strange adventurer. And is this Patrick? No, it... No, the central character here is Matthew Venn. Matthew, sorry. Matthew, Matthew Venn, yeah, yes. in, in Devon. Yeah. It's down in Devon. And, um, yeah, she's moved her character. She's got the Shetland books and then she's got the books about Vera in Northumberland. And so we're in a, new, a different setting. I think this is a third Matthew Venn book. And um, it's just, you know, she isn't going to win any literary prizes. I'm, I'm not in any way being offensive here. But she should win all the prizes for driving along a narrative that makes me want to listen more. Oh, and deeply sympathetic characters. Yeah, really and, sympathetic. Yep. Sympathetically written, you you know, you, she makes you care about them. It's an abs- it is in it, it is a genius. Mm. It, it is a, a form of literary genius, but um, And anyway. Matthew is uh, gay and married, isn't he's he? He's married and he's a former member of the Plymouth Brethren. Yes, there's a sect. A sect about which yeah. I knew absolutely nothing. Anyway, there, there we go. It's a, it's a warm recommend if um, that's your kind of thing. Mm. It's definitely so mine. that's the book to read after you've done an Anne Enright. Uh, yes. I mean, you say that as though I might be doing an Anne Enright. Are you not going to? Well, I'll listen to your interview and see whether I think it's worth exploring. Do you know, I've really... Um, so Anne Enright, I've seen her being interviewed by uh, lots of other people. I'd never interviewed her myself. I was terrified. Uh, because she is one of those incredibly direct speakers and I've seen her get really quite annoyed with interviewers 
when they've asked her a question that she doesn't want to answer or actually just kind of feels as a bit pointless. <laughs> so okay. I went into the interview kind of slightly girding my loins. Uh, and also because she had written a non-fiction book called Making Babies after she had become a mum, which is brilliant, actually. It's a collection of essays. They're so real, Jane, about the claustrophobia and the overwhelm of early motherhood. And I really liked them because I hadn't really managed to find very much uh, that I thought was honest enough about the maternal experience and I wasn't finding it in, you know, the pages of magazines or whatever. And, uh, you know, 20 years ago, there wasn't that much stuff that was really quite visceral about all the things that, you know, you might find joyful but also a bit, you know, a bit weird and a bit, you know, anxiety-making about motherhood. So I really, really loved that book. I was very grateful to her. Uh, for writing it so I hope everybody enjoys the interview I mean I take your point uh, you know the, uh, her books are they are quite dense and they're serious books Jane they're very serious books mm. uh, so but she wins prizes doesn't she, she does yeah. yeah and not everybody has to be in it for the laughs don't they no speaking of which let's uh, briefly return to yesterday's guest Rory Stewart <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean he was he was a guest I was intrigued to meet genuinely, and now I've met him, I'm I'm still a little intrigued. Um, uh, Kathy from Hampshire, uh, I believe he has two young sons. Do you really think that him saying I might do in response to your question as to whether or not he'd think about sending his children to Eton is in fact the truth, or do you do you think as I do that in fact their names are already very firmly on the list? Well, um, Kathy, you, you might be right, and actually my understanding is if you do want your child, your son, in fact, because they don't take girls, do they? Um, if you want your son to go to Eton, you do have to put their name down um, as, more or less as soon as they're born, and then of course I suppose you've got to rely on them getting in because I don't think they take everybody, and then you've got to have fifty grand a year in order to send them. Mm. So it's not something everyone could do it's not uh, it's not it's not like the, the the deadline that you and i probably faced you know the october deadline for primary schools and secondary schools rising fives yes i do Ooh, is it that time i no, i got my child into the local primary school nursery um i put her name down when she was two they said they'd take her on her third birthday and the woman said there's just one requirement and i thought oh my god what is it and uh, she said well she does have to be continent and i said right well and we were nowhere near it at that stage as well. We'll go home and we'll start working on it today. And she said, I don't think you need to rush. Well, I bloody do, because I definitely want her to come here as soon as possible. Uh, anyway, we got the job done. But mm. that was the only, that's the beauty of a primary education, nursery education. It's a wonderful thing. It truly is a wonderful thing. I always feel for nursery teachers in that first week because I think there are just possibly 50% of the kids are turning up with the parents saying, oh, no, that's just a little accident. You know, little Johnny's usually so good. Never does it normally. Little Johnny hasn't got the faintest idea what a potty is. (laughs) This time of year is so... uh, I went to the shops really early yesterday morning, so Monday morning, and I think for some kids who'd just gone back or started secondary school it might be the beginning of like their they maybe started on Thursday of last week and then Monday's reality had dawned and there were kids trudging along on their own wearing uniforms that were clearly brand new dragging hockey sticks that were the same size as them and I just I felt some of them really had their heads down and were just 
I don't think I'm going to like this very much. And I just feel so sorry for them. It does get better. It really does get better. But it's it's not easy. No. And in London town, uh, because, you know, most of the kids are travelling to school on their own, uh, there just are lost kids who've got off the bus at the wrong place. They've got yeah. off the tube at the wrong place. Yeah. And actually, I do remember a, a kind of 12, 13-year-old boy I bumped into when we were working back at the mothership who had clearly, I was on my way into work, he had, was just, you know when you can tell a kid, lost yeah and he yeah. just looked quite panicky and um, and I thought I'm just going to do that thing on the basis that I really hope if that's ever my kid another mum does We're that thing yeah, yeah. of just walking straight up to them saying are you okay mm. and of course he wasn't okay and he didn't really know where he was and you know we walked to the place where he recognized and then he went back in and stuff and I've always thought you know I'm not a random giver of kindness on a daily basis that's not what I'm saying at all but you do a karma thing don't you where you just think that could be my kid so yeah. I'm going to just help that one out or in my case, it could have been me not, I mean, <laughs> frankly it could easily have been me and actually my favorite story of um, school mishaps was the father yes it was a man who dropped his child off at our primary school playground where everybody wore a red uniform and the kid was wearing a purple uniform but he still dropped them off uh, I think he was new to the dropping off at school game and the child was sent in a taxi with an appropriate adult to the correct primary school where everybody wore the same uniform as them. I mean, God loves a trier. It was a primary school in fairness. But also, I think that, you know, there's the, the sometimes when you get to the end of a very, very long summer holiday where you would just be, any school will do... Is this a school? Just find a peg, find a name that looks like yours. Just hang your coat up, go on in. No one will notice. Uh, This one um, comes from Kate, who says about Rory Stewart, his candor was candor, 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 uh, was appealing. But is he really able to move beyond the persona of someone who feels more or less born to lead, especially in a crisis? Uh, And that was the thing that Rory was very keen to say, wasn't he, that he loves a crisis. Uh, The decentralisation of power he wishes for is that just geographical spread of their chaps? Or is there a wish to see wealth and really fine education more fairly distributed so that different and more representative types of leadership could be allowed to flourish all over the country? Uh, Kate says, I genuinely can't tell from that interview... But here's a troubling giveaway. The only two questions, and we're now in capital letters, he asked you were ones to which he already knew the answer. Yes, a couple of people noticed that. Uh, We didn't know the answer (laughs) to the questions, incidentally. The question was, what is Sakir Starmer's economic policy? And I thought your answer was a very good one, that we can't really tell because uh, Sakir Starmer doesn't seem to know yet himself. Um, But it was... uh, It did feel a bit like a gotcha moment, actually, that. So, uh, because there isn't an answer... We, no. we don't yet know what Labour's no. uh, manifesto pledges on the economy No, will I mean, be. they don't dare make any, do no. they? I mean, in fairness, nor does anybody else. Um, another listener, female, um, and this is significant, um, she wants it um, to be mentioned that they are a female listener in this instance. Um, I really like Rory Stewart, and that has surprised me. For one, he's a Tory, or maybe more appropriate to say he was a Tory. He is extremely intelligent and considered, but probably more importantly, he does seem to be honest and reflective. 
I agree that his comment about possibly sending his boys to Eton was a bit surprising, maybe even disappointing, but he was, at least again, honest. His book sounds fascinating. You made a point about women probably being annoyed by their podcast because of the lack of women discussed or indeed included in politics. I'm somewhat embarrassed to say I'd hardly notice, but I think you are right. Government is very much an old boys club, even more so now after the last couple of years, I feel. The department I work in is also an old boys club in many ways. Maybe I too readily accept this as I would never aspire to one of those jobs. And I also find the competitive nonsense rather pathetic. Um, So I think this listener is a civil servant, but we probably shouldn't say any more about that. Um, But that's interesting. I mean, there is no doubt that men sometimes pursue uh, senior jobs and lots of responsibility and women might be less keen to do those jobs. But that is often, though not always, because women have domestic responsibilities which they feel they probably ought to prioritise. Hmm. Um, it's never entirely straightforward, this, is it? Um, are men better at senior jobs? No. Are they more likely to get them? Yes. But are they also more likely to put themselves forward? Also, yes. And they're also more likely to have the confidence to consider themselves appropriate for the role. Yeah, but Um, is there an inherent danger in constantly repeating all of those things because you just reinforce the stereotype? I think that's true. Yeah. yeah, And I have to say, and I said this on the programme yesterday, that having read all of Rory Stewart's book, there really isn't a hint of misogyny in it. It's not like he tries to leave out the you know major players, female players in the politics uh, that he's encountered. Uh, you know, he talks uh, in depth about the contributions made by Theresa May and by Liz Truss. Uh, and I didn't get I didn't get the feeling that I was reading a book that was deliberately excluding women from the arena at all so uh that's worth saying yeah yeah i think it, i think it is um shall we mention the email from uh an anonymous listener who tried to well, was considering um getting a ticket to see rory stewart at the lowry theater um earlier in the year they say that's the lowry in salford earlier in the year they say they had seen uh, the comedian stuart lee there I was shocked that seat prices to effectively hear Rory promote his book were over twice the price I'd paid to see Stuart Lee. Both were one-man shows by ex-Oxford men, so didn't need any fancy expensive stage gear. I'm fortunate in that I could afford the well in excess of 60 quid ticket price to hear Rory, and I get supply and demand and the right to charge what you like, and that his team would have set the prices, but it did seem to me a little expensive... I emailed Rory to ask if some of the Lowry ticket price was going to charity. I didn't expect to get a reply, and I didn't. But I experienced a little schadenfreude when Rory announced on his podcast ten days before the Lowry event that he'd sold out the Albert Hall for two nights, but there were still tickets available for the Lowry. I told a colleague about this, and he replied, well, Rory is a Tory. Um... Yes, and maybe Tories aren't all that popular in Salford. I think that's the, that's the point there. But um, yes, yeah, Stuart Lee was obviously uh, a, a reasonable price and um, our correspondent felt that Rory was a little pricey. Uh, what were we? Let's move on <laughs> to... We certainly weren't over 60 quid. No, we weren't over 60 quid. I think we usually chucked a free book in, didn't yeah, we? As as well. I've got some to spare if anyone would like some Well, more. also, yes, I've got 15. <laughs> so seriously... <laughs> I've lined them all up on one bookshelf. <laughs> I might just have in the Jane Garvey tribute room. Dra- the Jane Garvey tribute chamber. Yes. Uh, I've got 
with all my awards. And uh, I should just have a shelf full of yeah. the paperback. And let's face it, the ten hardback copies I've got as well. Good idea. Add a leaking valve on the toilet up above, and so some of them are slightly stuck to the wall, Jane. <laughs> they may never come out. I thought they'll be worth even more. <laughs> oh, they really will. You know, they've gone all bulbous at the back. Oh, what a lovely thought. God's sake. <laughs> um, uh, can I hark back to Yonder Times, please? Because uh, this is an email that I think very kindly uh, you left on the pile when you were doing the podcast with Jane Mulcairn. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, because uh, it refers to uh, Stella, uh, the name that our correspondent went by when she was doing some stripping. That's right. Do yeah. you remember, we had mm-hmm. this fantastic series of emails about her time as a stripper. Uh, and I'd asked a question because I just wanted to know a little bit more about how she got into it. Uh, so she got back in touch. Uh, just answering your question from yesterday, I am mostly okay. Thank you for asking. It has been a bit of a process. I fell into stripping and sex work after my eight-month-old daughter died when I was 20 and I was in it for about seven years. There were some exciting times, but there were also many dark and dangerous times too. I put it all behind me for many years, but around 2018 I had a bit of a breakdown and I found myself an amazing therapist. We've worked together to unpick all the trauma I experienced. My therapy is still ongoing and like I say, I'm now going into my third year of training to become a psychotherapist myself. So yes, I'm doing well and I now integrate the stellar days into my life now. I'm not ashamed, rather I'm proud of all I survived. Uh, Thank you for getting back in touch with that. You have had a lot to contend with. Uh, So uh, both Jane and I really wish you well going forward, to use a terrible modern expression, uh, and uh, it's good to hear from you, so thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Stella, and uh, take care of yourself. And actually, that is just... Uh, isn't that an example of how everyone has a story? Oh, uh, isn't it? And also, just... do you know what, Jane? So, you know, to, to lose an eight-month-old uh, baby when you're still so young, yeah. uh, I mean, how on earth anybody, how the world would expect you to try and cope with that, I just don't know, uh, to find yourself so much further down the line doing something uh, that actually puts your experiences back into the world to help other people is remarkable. And it's just one line in an email there, Jane, isn't it? But it's a whole bloody life. Yeah. So, you know, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's Jane and Fee at times.radio. Can I just briefly refer back to my lovely trip to Sicily and what I refer to as a croissant yesterday? I bitterly regret it. Um, <laughs> I bitterly regret mentioning I'd had any carbohydrates because, as you know, I am a stranger to carbs. Uh, it, must, it, was a, it was a very short-term lapse. And as I say, Are you still doing the no-bread thing? <laughs> Do you remember about a year ago? <laughs> I did it for 10 You ten announced <laughs> that you were off-bread. <laughs> And then the next day you had a sandwich. <laughs> I've had no bread since that baguette I finished at five to one. Um, so, uh, this is anonymous. You see, other carb fanciers, like we like to keep ourselves anonymous. Um, this listener says, the croissant-like pastries in Italy are actually called cornetti in central Italy and brioche in the north and south. Did you know that? I didn't. No, I, nor did I, so thank you very much. Uh, they are never called croissant, and they're very different to their French counterparts. They're much less buttery and flaky, and to my mind, all the better for that. And I just want to say thanks to Jane for talking about having to position her swimming costume with a mind to her HRT patch. <laughs> I don't know why I mentioned that. Um, because, But it is an ongoing issue for me that I never... I never know, because I don't, can't see myself from the back. You know, I've got no idea how much of the buttock is revealed by the one piece. 
And so, um, therefore, I don't think we need any more detail, but I'm grateful to the correspondent for saying that they're glad that I have the same problems as them. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you about the patch? Because I don't do a patch, I do a no. lozenge. Yes. But with the patch, um, A, does it really properly stay on in water? Um, I mean, if you went for a really long swim or you had a well, whole day... Well, that's not likely, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and you're out of the pool. Um, oh, well, yeah, they're ve- I, I have lost a couple over the years, but actually it's very unusual for one to drop off. Okay, so Although they're really sticky. That, I found one on the floor only yesterday. Yeah. Where that had been and when I was last employing it, I don't know. And are you told that you can only put it on certain parts of your body? I think it's below the... Yes, it's basically below the navel. Right, so you can't wear it on the top of your arm or somewhere sensible you Remember can see Remember that day it. I wore it on my nose and you said, Jane... <laughs> What are you wearing? <laughs> what is that wonderful novelty plaster you've got on? God, I thought that was just a dream. Do you know what? We'll save our dreams for another time. Oh, yeah, but you've had, had some, had some gorgeous. really weird Oh, no, it's ones. all gone quiet in my dream world That's lately. It? Yeah, Nothing about I mean, you sound to be having a fabulous time. Mine have become unbelievably, almost unbearably vivid at the moment. Mm. Yeah. It's the change in the seasons. I think, yep, or I just need to up my meds. Uh, oh, can I just do a very tiny one before we do the cue to Anne Enright technical term there? Uh, Jeff in France says, Hello, Jane and Fee. Clement Attlee was bald. Best regards. Thank you. Um, I, I'm i now completely baffled as to why that was relevant. There was a time when it was relevant. Oh, yes, we did talk about why we've never had a bald Prime Minister. Yes, because we were talking yeah. about Claire Balding's yeah. hair. Yes. Yeah. You got more on that? <laughs> I haven't <laughs> at all. No. Because um, my my dad's 90th birthday, which I did refer to a couple of weeks ago, um, I just Googled uh, who was the Prime Minister on the day my dad was born because it's a long time ago. It was Ramsay MacDonald. Oof. I know. And it, that's what I mean. I mean, he went on famously to open those lovely restaurants. Um, <laughs> but at the time, he was in politics. Okay. And, no, it really did make... I said to I, I did ask him, actually, do you know who was Prime Minister on the day you were born? And, actually, none of the, the um, relatively elderly elderly folk in the room at the time could, could name the Prime Minister. And was it a good do? Uh, yes, well, it was. It was one of uh, three do's. There's another one this weekend. Blimey. With all the grandchildren, yes. So I think he's enjoying I think um, it is a sort of responsibility being the centre of these events, isn't it? And you know, It must be a nightmare, because yeah. also it's a room full of people going, oh, well, you know, might be your last. Well, of course, of course it might. Yes. Let, let's, not, let's not beat around the old um, inevitability bush here. <laughs> 90 is a very, very good age. Um, and look, they are, my mum and dad are very fortunate to have each other still. And to be able to enjoy various parts of their life to the full. I yep. think and to brilliant. have you, Jane. And to have both their daughters and their wonderful grandchildren. Yeah, I still haven't got in touch with Alison yet, but I'm going to. She's actually coming to London next week. Is She's she? on a course. Would you like to pop in and say hello here well, at I'll, Times Town? I'll dangle that prospect in front of her, but... Um, you know, I would like to meet her, actually. No, I don't think I And I will that. give no. her a really, really firm no. handshake and I will linger I think, just a couple of seconds too long on that one. I think the course is very full on and I very much <laughs> doubt she'll have time to, to come anywhere. 
Oh dear, Alison, I'll meet you round the back no. at about ten past five. Anne Enright is a talented writer. She's become the first laureate for Irish fiction and is the winner of the Man Booker Prize. That was for her fourth novel, The Gathering, and her latest novel, as Jane said, is called The Wren, The Wren. It covers themes that Anne writes so well about, the claustrophobia of motherhood, the big stage that creative people can need to have, how one generation in a family can dominate all the others. So her main protagonists are three generations in that family. Phil, a poet, Carmel, a dedicated mum, Nell, a travel writer. And I started by asking Anne to explain a bit more about who they all are to each other. Yeah, so uh, Nell, the wonderful Nell, is, I suppose you'd call her a millennial. I think actually the new term is a messy millennial. She's uh, in her early 20s and she's just starting out in life, uh, trying to get away from her mother, Carmel, who um, is uh, another type of person entirely. (laughs) Nell thinks her mother is the most boring person in the world. But then we meet Carmel in her own childhood and see what her kind of story is. And her story basically is that her father, the great poet Phil McDara uh, left the family when she was 12 in order to go and complete his sort of identity as a poet and be, be himself in the largest sense of the word out in the wide world. So it's just those three. Phil is dead. His poems are in the book. So he kind of persists as like poems and text. Um, Nell talks uh, in first person. She's uh, very online. She's very now. Um, actually, I'm not going to say she's very now. That sounds terrible. That's the kind of thing that Nell herself would find a ridiculous kind of Well, I love those little details about Nell, actually. And there's a moment quite early on when you introduce us to her. Uh, she's a writer, isn't she? And you, she notes uh, that she's a little bit annoyed that day uh, because she's just realised uh, that she had built up a huge following on Twitter just when everybody had turned to Instagram. Yeah, that's very year-specific. I, I mean, I'd have it to... Yeah, I did my research, as they say, yeah. But it's lovely little details like that that carry the reader through this huge story about generations. Is it possible to even know in your head who you thought of first as a character? Oh, oh very, very much so. Um, I think Phil was kind of a gathering fog when Carmel uh, arrived. So one character was a kind of atmosphere um, and his leaving. I mean, I, I suppose that rupture. So it's not a character that arrives so much as a situation or a problem. Um, and I was with Carmel for, for a very long time in the writing, wondering, she's a very tough-minded, unimaginative sort of get over it sort of person. Um, get over yourself would be her mantra, although she doesn't actually say that in the book. Um, very pragmatic. Um, and I didn't know where to go with her in the writing. I mean, she wouldn't go away. So I knew I had to do something with her. And then I thought, well, what would happen if she got pregnant? I thought this suddenly now is a really interesting and possibly moving. And, you know, there are aspects of tragedy there too. Um, yes, and we will come on to, to talk about those. But you you say she's a bit boring. I didn't find her... Um, I, I found her pragmatic. But I thought some of the things she knew about herself were actually very clever. Did she? She's not a, she's not a stupid woman. No. She seemed to be a woman who just quite was just quite honest about how much she struggled to get through things, really, which is quite a normal feeling, isn't it? Yes. So um, I want. I have. I, you can't write a character without being on side. So I was. I'm very much on 
Carmel's side. Um, she is pragmatic, she's literal minded and she's a bit closed off from other people, perhaps. So her boundaries are too good. Uh, she is too mm. much of a buffer between herself um, and the kind of empathy that she could feel for other people. So it's one thing her being sort of tough minded on herself. It's another thing <clears throat> when she's lacking in, uh, you know, sympathy for other people's plights, I suppose. And um, what did you want the reader to really feel about her relationship with Phil? He's described sometimes in the book as being this wall, this mm. huge thing that just existed in her life, which is, I think, uh, it can happen, can't it, when a parent just wants to always remain the very largest person in the room. Well, it's funny. I, I've done a number of um, uh, chats about the book now, and it's very distinctive if people have come from a... Uh, a, a, a relationship that's split up in the past, that this moment of, of splitting is, is really bewildering in some way, to, on some level, uh, something that needs to be resolved for them. Um, his leaving transformed him into another kind of object. And the fact that he w had a reputation in the world as a poet meant that the girls that he left behind, Carmel and her sister Imelda, didn't have the chance to hate him. They didn't have the chance to say, look what you did. And society didn't even agree with, it didn't agree with them on any level that it was a terrible thing that he had done to them. So they didn't know how to express it themselves. So they kind of worship his poems or dismiss his poems or they have a relationship to his work because they don't have a relationship with the man. It is still just a fact, isn't it, that it's just much easier for a man to leave their family than it yes. is for a woman to... It's, Do you think that will ever change? Um, uh, you know, I mean, Phil leaves because his wife gets sick and it's based on a little uh, incident that happened in my own life. I was talking to some, someone and he was arranging custody or not custody, pickups for his kids or something. And he said, oh, you know, we split up. My wife got sick and we split up. And, it, uh, and three or four days after that conversation, I realised that he, he had left a woman who was sick with small children <laughs> it just seems so natural I thought maybe he meant she had lost her mind and kicked him out or <laughs> been mentally unwell things get difficult in relationships for sure um, um, but what happens when men are called on to, to, to care for uh, the women in their lives is actually an, a, a, an untold story um, because some of them just don't seem to have signed up for that Whereas women don't have the choice whether to care for, for, for their people or not. It's an absolute, an absolute given. Sometimes mm. uh, it's a, a completely physical connection as in between a mother and a child. And the more that we strive for equality and the more that we achieve it, do you think the more that can be questioned or do you think that there is an innate caring, nurturing side to women that will always be played upon? I don't know. I mean, I think pregnancy is a really interesting time of transition for, for not just for the brain changes as well in early motherhood. Um, people are, are made different by these biological events in some way that isn't as impactful um, on, on uh, the person who isn't carrying the baby, put it that way. But... Mm. Yeah, um, I, I think that we're able to 
see things now and say things now that we wouldn't have been able to see or say 20 years ago. So that's all to the good. And I think that um, men um, have discovered, uh, I mean, men love looking after their children now in a way that they would be laughed at um, in my youth, you know. Yeah. And so they see the upside to, to it as well. So the contract is changing for sure. Let's talk about the mother-daughter relationship because it is such a theme of your work and there's a claustrophobia, isn't there, for Nell with her relationship with her mum. To quote back to you one of your beautiful sentences, and this is uh, Car about Carmel, she could not hold her daughter and she could not let her daughter go. And that's just such a beautiful way of expressing that free sort of maternal love. I, somebody told me that their teenage uh, daughter would come into the the bed with them in, on a Sunday morning the way she always used to but they weren't allowed hug her touch her or talk to her in any way <laughs> so this, this drama which is you know in in the daughter uh, as you know mostly this drama of separation and and reconnection then that happens towards the end of the novel um is the stuff of you know the novel as a form connection distance and connection but do you very deliberately keep going back to it because there's something about it that you don't understand or completely the opposite, there's something about it that you just understand more and more that you want to put down on the page? I think I probably understand it better, for sure. Uh, because I've looked on life on bo uh, from both sides now, to quote the song. <laughs> I have been both mother and daughter. So uh, that's kind of, the thing I find very mysterious and bewildering is actually... Um, the relationship between daughter and father um, and I haven't gone there very much I would like to kind of get over that whatever that is uh, and mm. find a way of writing about that As you're listening to me Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods Thanks Daisy there's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Anne Enright is our guest on the podcast today. And without giving too much of the book, The Wren, The Wren, away, there are some really visceral passages about violence. And in particular, there's one passage that Anne herself really struggled to get through when she was recording the audiobook. So I asked her about the depth of that feeling. So, yes, there are three kinds of language in the book, OK? Phil talks 
in, 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 in the language that's available to him, it's kind of lyrical, a little bit fake, a little bit sort of feels authentic, but also feels a little bit fake. Carmen, Carmel is quite, a, it seems quite normal, naturalistic style. Anyway, in, 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 in these, these are historical kind of accents, you might say. So the things that were possible to say between Nell and Carmel wouldn't have been possible to say in Phil's time. And Phil lives at a time of casual, constant and gleeful violence. So uh, there's violence involving animals, content alert. There's violence between uh, parents. When, when Phil's mother goes off to get a teaching job, he says that her arm grows lean in the beating of children that were not her own. So it's a, an absolute casual given. So then when Phil comes to go around clocking his kids over the back of the head when he gets a bad review in the newspaper, they also see it as almost comical and just like the weather, you know, it's like you just have to get out of the way of it. It's a given, it's a fact of life. And that continues um, to the present day when there, the, when there's an argy-bargy between Carmel and Nell, which shows that it's much more serious than that. It's, it's devastating. It's, a, it's an actual devastating event. Um, and I found it very hard to read because it's Carmel's terrible moment. It's when, um, you know, she, she loves Nell. She's a single mother. Nell is all she has. Um, and she has this astonishing abiding love for her. So she feels it as a betrayal of her own uh, uh, love for her child as well as everything else. But it makes it super real. I mean, it's very ordinary. It's actually on some levels much more banal than the other violence that's in the book. Um, but it's much more affecting. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was uh, a really... I had to read the passage twice, actually, just to make sure that I had really taken on the significance of it. Because, because also there's a moment, isn't there, where Carmel isn't sure just how much she's hurt her child which kind of catches you as the reader too. Um, but okay, I, she says, does I mean, it, she says, how, what would you have to do to land a child in hospital? And, and, and you see how, in, in that sentence, you see what taboos are at play here. Um, you see how normal and how hidden these things are, actually. Or not normal, how, how, uh, how little understood, I suppose, these things are. Yeah. yeah. Um and so when you when you actually come to write something like that um I mean do you, do you have to kind of uh gird your loins yourself does it come very easily to do that do you then do what I did as the reader which is just kind of walk away from it for a bit let it sink in how does that work as the writer It's the kind of moment uh that you're building up to for the whole of that section or the whole of that book uh, for the whole of that character, actually. It's the real moment for the character. Um, so by the time you get there, you're ready to write it, I think. Um, but, I mean, I write everything a million times. Uh, so um, I, I was very interested in her. There's a kind of falling apart that happens to her, that she holds herself together so much. She's all about holding herself together, and that tumbles apart, that fragments in that moment. Um, mm. So that was interesting to catch. It was a kind of moment almost, I suppose, of psychosis rather than of anything else. She seems to just fall a fragment. Yeah. 
Um, obviously, there are universal themes of uh, motherhood throughout the book. Um, but just to go back to the Twitter and the Instagram kind of uh, generation, there's some very canny observation about what young women now go through in their lives. And, and particularly uh, with regard to sex, the fact that it can be filmed, the fact that it could be made public, the fact that you know about your friend's sex. Or, you know, there's, a, the, there's something around it that wasn't there in previous generations. Yeah. And I, I wonder how either fearful or optimistic you are for the young women of today and well, it, it, yeah I mean just uh, on the last point it's interesting that the, the you know whatever the sexual violence of the book uh, between Nell and her ghastly boyfriend Phelan actually he's not as ghastly as he, he seems but her ill-advised relationship with this young man and um, and, and that kind of that, that kind of violence is very normalised and very glamorised in a lot of the narratives we see today um, even without going online which Phelan clearly spends a lot of time I'm doing um, and um, so how hopeful am I well I am interested in change for my characters I'm interested in growth for the characters um, I think the 20s people's 20s were always hard one way or the other um, and there's an amount agree, of blundering around that kind of goes on but I worry, and that you know, my twenties they they didn't contain a kind of normalisation of rough sex. There wasn't a normalisation of choking. Uh, there wasn't a I don't think a normalisation of role play. There was none of that, and they were still bewildering. Sure, it's <laughs> still quite difficult yeah, to get. Yeah, through. yeah, um, and uh, I I wonder actually because some of these things come into the public discourse very kind of suddenly. When when women are killed, for example, during sex, and there is uh, 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 and and um, and consent is used as an argument in court, um, and that happens quite abruptly, and then it's resolved in some way. So we we kind of move a little bit further on. I think the conversation is more open than it used to be, and I think people are just more aware, maybe. Yeah, I think it's always helpful uh, when. Uh, when fiction gives you an account of what's happening in the world as well. Because for lots of people, fiction is where you first meet very difficult concepts sure. and where you can kind of work your way through them. So do you feel the older you get, you and I are the same age, so I'm insulting myself in saying that, Anne, uh, that you, have, you will re retain the confidence to carry on writing about younger women do you ever feel too much of a distance might come on board? you know the funny thing is that uh, I, I haven't been old yet but nobody would be surprised if I wrote an old character they wouldn't say how do you know that oh my god how do you know that but young people regard their lives as a kind of diff a separate country slightly and and not being understood is part of their part of how they see themselves so the idea that I can write about young people even though I was myself once a young person is uh, it, 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 you know makes makes people raise their eyebrows what, what would you know we've all been young um, and, and, and I haven't yet been old I have I have no problem writing um, I have no uh, yeah I suppose I kind of thought maybe I should stop writing about sex soon <laughs> <laughs> and is that is, is that a pleasing prospect or is that a sad prospect? Sorry, um, sorry um, no, it's a very serious subject. And of course, no, I, 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 
I think a really uh, um, formative time in my life was when Ireland was uh, breaking free of repressive kind of bonds to do with sex and sexuality. And we thought it was going to be great. From now on, everyone is going to have a really good time. So the, the idea that that would be turned around again to having a worse kind of time than, than anyone had envisaged is really interesting to me. And I think maybe it comes not in cycles, but it kind of spirals outwards. It gets, you know, yeah, I, 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 I am hopeful. I am hopeful, mm. yes. I also have great mm. faith in men. Anne Enright and her latest novel is called The Wren, The Wren. It's out now. Out now. Yeah, uh, and um, it's been a special day here actually in any number of ways we had to come in early uh, but also uh, because you and I attempted a short explainer on the pensions triple lock to our younger colleagues two of whom stayed awake right to the very end <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody even mentioned pensions to you under oh, the age oh, of 30 yeah, I just I mean, you know. just glazed oh, over it, didn't uh, you to be honest it, under 40 Possibly under 45 feet. I mean, I just, I was as thick as mince about this. I really was. And now you can't afford any mince. Well, as you know, I used to do nothing but make the mince and <laughs> since the vegan veggie is, days. Is that your league now, love? If you didn't do your compound interest over the last 30 just years? define compound interest, please. Uh, so compound interest is uh, when interest is paid. Uh, it is the amount that that interest adds to the original amount that then adds interest to the original amount. And so it goes on. And so it goes on. It's like a cat returning to wee in the same part of your sofa. In other words, the it more increases you... the smell every time, Jane. The more you have, the more you'll make. Yeah, that's yeah. a better way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, you could go with a cat. We one if you want. Take your pick. We both went for money box on Radio Four, and neither of us got it. I don't know why. Um, right, some cracking guests coming up uh, later in the week. Uh, Anne Enright was a good get, I should say. And before that, of course, we're certainly not embarrassed to have had Rory Stewart on board. But later in the week. It's only Clive Myrie and Robert Beston. Oh, the big boys. They are swinging into town, they aren't they? They really are. And I, honestly, the testosterone whizzing around the studio. We'll be very, very tired, James, won't we, by the end of the week? And we'll both be doing a little bit of tittering. Anyway, enjoy, because they're coming your way. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, lady. A lady listener. Sorry. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.